welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. The following podcast is a lightly edited version of a policy call we held on March 20th discussing further economic policy developments by the Treasury Department and the Congress. Joining me today is ACGA's Director of Research, John East, Director of Policy, Rob Wagner, our Director of International Policy, Chris Zerwinski, Special Advisor, Bart Oosterveld, and Chief Operating Officer, Gabby Hefessa. Today, we will continue to discuss the policy responses to the coronavirus pandemic as we shift our focus from public health and safety to the looming economic crisis. Congress has now passed two relief packages, and the Senate is moving at warp speed towards a $1 trillion third package. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve has opened up unprecedented emergency lending facilities in consultation with the Treasury Department. For more updates on the coronavirus pandemic and its effects on capital markets, subscribe to our coronavirus email live feed and get up-to-date information without waiting for our polished research notes. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. We will now proceed with the call. John, let's start off by summarizing. Thank you, John, for your sleepless uh, night. You're going to have a sleepless weekend as bill number three comes into focus. What, What was in the first bill and the second bill? I myself divide our coverage and and where the nation is. We're we're moving from a public health crisis, safety crisis, to an economic crisis. And the Congress and the White House are moving to address this economic crisis. So let us look at the first bill passed last week. Seems like eons ago. Second bill passed earlier this week. Then we can move on and discuss Bill 3 and some of the uh, ops, what's going on at the Federal Reserve. John? So the first bill was really a public health emergency preparedness bill. The White House initially wanted between one and two billion, depending on offsets. Democrats wanted eight billion. They got it. I think it's depending on how you count the cost. It's like 8.5 billion. The next bill was basically 10 times that amount. It's 105 billion that passed the House and Senate two days ago. And this new bill, that we are discussing now is at around a trillion dollars and is only growing. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that he wants everything to be concluded by around midnight tonight. Uh, that will be the third time that Congress has been debating midnight in the last three weeks, two weeks, uh, because he wants to set up closure and that process takes roughly three days to go through because he would like to pass this on Monday. So we're moving at a very quick speed, and but right now the Democrats are determining what they want to add to this bill. They are focusing more on small business and public health services as opposed to economic-based measures that, that are really centerpiece of the Republican bill. But so they will likely get much of what they want, both because the White House wants a bipartisan bill, also because you need Democratic votes in the Senate to get this done, and you also have to get it through the House. So the first two bills were very much Democratic asked. The 
between Pelosi and Schumer, and they are going to have an opportunity to shape this bill, even though it is uh, really a McConnell product in the draft that we have now. The, the draft we have now is not So, John, it's been published that McConnell's bill is roughly $1.1 million. So Basically, Schumer came out with a $750 billion bill yesterday. Are you predicting that both of these bills can be – we may see a $2 trillion bill moving from Congress to the president? I think it could add up very quickly, in part because we need Democratic votes, and in part because much – what the Democrats are asking for is not so controversial, and also because of the time pressure. People are not going to have time to go through all the provisions of this bill. That can backfire, too. If, if, if people try to sneak something in and it gets caught, that's, that's actually what helps delay the second bill. But, yes. The Democrats have a lot of leverage in this process. No one wants to, no one on the Republican side, and I'm not trying to cast any aspersion on my Democratic friends, but no one on the Republican side wants a partisan bill, nor do they have the ability to move it on its own. Interestingly, I want to just touch on the differences between the Republican uh, McConnell bill and the Schumer bill before we move on to, to other topics. I mean, different, different view of what is a small business. The McConnell bill calls it a small business those with 500 employees or less and provides for loans up to $10 million. And then it also has a section, uh, Division C, where they're going to provide $208 billion to the Secretary of the Treasury. Of that, $50 billion for air carriers, $8 billion for cargo carriers, and $150 billion for other eligible entities. And the Secretary can offer, provide collateralized loans and loan guarantees. I am somewhat suspect of this provision because the Treasury Department is not is not in the loan making business generally. Seems to be a recipe for for moving slowly. Similarly, I think as most people probably have caught, debate moves on. Should the government should there be a loan? Should the government take equity? Should there be a freeze that's Trump backed on stock buybacks? Uh, these key issues have not been completely resolved yet. John, just touch you just you just published on your chat a couple seconds ago the Democratic version of a small business. Well, so the, the latest bill text, I have not had time to go through the bill for this yet, which I acknowledged on the chat, but the Senate Finance Committee Democrats just released. They're defining for this new proposal a small business as 50 or fewer employees um, or a business, and, and also a business that has less than $1 million in gross receipts as of the last tax year. There are so many definitions small business in the law, it's quite confusing. So what the Republican proposal did is it used what is sort of the default SBA, Small Business Administration, definition of small business, which is 500, not 50, but 500 or fewer employees. But that's actually a very misleading statement I just gave, because if you go through the SBA loan size definitions, they vary by sector of the economy and even within sectors. Uh, the Republican bill just makes it simpler, and it just says 500. But, but if you go through federal law, whether you're looking at health care provisions or, or other economic assistance provisions, what constitutes small business is, just, is just like 35 different definitions. It's probably the lowest. But let's, let me – I want to leave our, our – our guests on the line with what is shaping this bill is the pain of the 08 rescue package. There's a lot of political collateral damage from that bill. There's a perception that, you know, uh, those that caused the crisis, the banks were rescued, small business wasn't. 
John, would you like to elaborate on that at all? I think you were working for the banking committee, perhaps. I mean, there, yes, there's a political reality here that I'm a little bit sensitive to, having come from working for the Republican side, and it's the word bailout. And I touched on it yesterday in, in our live feed. It is a millstone around the neck of Republicans. What's different here, as opposed to in 08, is that no one believes that we are bailing out industries that were responsible for the crisis. So as Senator McConnell said on the Senate floor yesterday, there's no moral hazard. Nevertheless, Republicans have been very careful to structure things as loans, or at least to appear to structure them as loans, because some of these loans will actually be forgiven if you don't lay off employees, for instance. But, but they don't want the word bailout to be used, and to the extent that people use that term, it makes it harder to vote for economic relief for people. John, can you elaborate a little bit more on those loans that would be forgiven? Because that will make a huge difference for companies down. Well, there's some small business loan where the size of the loan or the degree to which it is forgiven depends on whether you maintain your payroll. There's a problem with that. The problem with that is unemployment insurance. And a lot of people are actually laying off their workers, not because they're heartless, but because if you don't lay off your workers, you can, and it depends on state law as well, make them unavailable for unemployment insurance. Now, if you lay people off, that affects their health care benefits. But in some small business sectors, people basically don't have any health care to speak of. So what we're, what is not being addressed very well in any of the proposals I've seen thus far is the interplay of state law and federal law as it applies to people being able to claim the unemployment benefits. So Republicans are trying to do an end run around this problem in a way which is to provide individuals who earn less than $99,000 a year, which changes if you're married and filing jointly, up to $2,400 of tax relief for a married couple or $1,200 for an individual with an additional provision of $500 per dependent. But we do, we, we do have a problem here, and everyone is acting very quickly. It's not a very well-thought-out process. But Democrats in general also support some type of mechanism as it applies to extending benefits to businesses to ensure that they actually get to people, and the mechanism is to to condition aid on maintaining the payroll. And are they very targeted towards this approach to small businesses, or could we see the 50 billion on airlines be forgiven? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Currently, the 50 billion has to be paid by the airlines. I, you know, in my experience, if there were some type of problem, Congress might just extend the deadline and extend it to the point where, you know, these things become meaningless. But as of right now, no, because we're trying to avoid the word bailout, it's a loan. And that's all it is. The airline right. industry had wanted to have grants, at least part of this to be in grants. But that's not exactly what they're getting. But they are getting, in terms of the amount they requested, basically exactly the amount. But again, we have, it's undetermined whether it is a loan. Does the government take warrants, participate in the upside? Do we have an AIG type of situation? But that's still to be determined. And, and it will be shaped by what, what members of Congress the senators feel is a political reality, what protects them the most. And, you know, we're lucky that, you know, we do have a Secretary of the Treasury that, that knows finance. 
that is very helpful at the, in this moment. John, anything else before we sort of get on to the, the other uh, big animal, the Fed? Not at the moment. Could we expect more after the bill this week? Yeah. You mean a bill number four, Gabby? Bill number four, bill number five, this Yes, I've already heard McConnell and other lawmakers talk about how we may be here for a four or a five. The complicating factor is the, the House and Senate convening. So right now, the House is, they have not actually formulated this plan with the necessary detail, but they don't plan on convening as a whole House. They're going to send some rump of lawmakers D.C. to vote, and you can do that because you would pass bills by a majority of those in the chamber, and that would satisfy the House rules. What is not clear is how you decide who you send back. And I could imagine, if you're clever, that you would send back members in certain combinations to affect the change that you want. The Senate has not done this. There are fewer rumblings on the Senate side, but there there is a desire for remote voting for the Senate. I think that sends a very bad sign the country, uh, I, and McConnell is not persuaded that this is the right course of action. But so the, what happens in subsequent bills, and I suspect as the economic repercussions become better known, as well as health care needs become better known, we will have subsequent bills. I just don't know who's going to be around to vote for them. Thank you, John. Let's go to Rob Wagner. Rob, uh, author of our 13-3 uh, rule, Fed note a week ago, widely read by Treasury last Thursday. We've seen Three extraordinary powers of the Fed rolled out in, in seven days. Rob, take us through these three new Fed capabilities. Sure. So they've rolled out three new facilities in consultation with Treasury. So the first was created, I believe, on Monday. first two was the commercial paper market, as well as the emergency stabilization fund. So it's $10 billion in the emergency stabilization fund, which is geared towards to be able to large creditworthy businesses during this crisis. And that was also used during the financial crisis as well. And the third, which was announced on Wednesday, allows collateralized loans in the money market fund, allows collateralized loans to banks that buy certain assets from money market funds. And those are the three okay, now, facilities that have been so far. So there, there is a debate going on whether to give the Fed expanded powers. Senator Menendez of New Jersey, probably the lead negotiator in the Senate, has proposed giving the Fed expanded uh, ability to purchase munis. They have that ability now for six munis with a six-month duration. Menendez wants it unlimited, probably will get in because of his power. Highly debated, additionally, is the Fed does not have the power to buy commercial credit like the ECB does. So, I mean, that's being debated. We've all watched the strain in commercial credit market this week. I think I think it will be granted. Similarly, Mnuchin on Friday, on Tuesday, announced a program. He's been silent about it. I know Krista Winch, she wants to talk about it, which would be reviving the ability of the FDIC to, buy, to guarantee bank loans. So bank issues credit, will issue that credit at to under uh, – an FDIC guarantee. Heard Mnuchin say it at the press conference. I picked it up. Uh, there was some press writing about it, but I haven't heard a thing about it all week. Is that correct, Chris? Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything new on it. Two programs that David's referring to are the temporary temporary liquid, loan guarantee program and the debt guarantee program through the FDIC, which are, again, 20, 2008-era programs, which 
back and pull certain deposit accounts and guarantee non-bank debt. Uh, Mnuchin has talked about it, and it's something that we've been waiting on. We've seen, obviously, the Fed move, as Rob just said, in, in multiple ways. But yeah, we haven't seen anything real in terms of expanded FDIC, expanded FDIC regulations. So that's something that we're going to be continuing to watch. I, I am predicting, though, that you know credit is at the heart of this crisis, keeping the liquidity problem from becoming a solvency problem. I think Mnuchin understands that. And I think they will be focused on credit availability to small and medium enterprises. You mentioned it Tuesday at his press conference. It, it's essential. And I think you will find that facility reopened. That's my prediction. I was just going to say, uh, say one thing, David, too. On top of that, just since we're talking about the Fed here and we've talked about it, some of these expanded 13-3 authorities and we've, we've talked about the FDIC, obviously we saw the Fed cut rates to near zero and expand purchases in treasuries and more respect securities. Uh, I wanted to bring in Bart Osterbelt just as we uh, as we talk about the Fed and, and maybe talk a little bit more, Bart, in a little bit more detail about some of the other global response to this to this crisis. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Chris. Uh, maybe starting with what central banks can do and have done globally. The Fed is not alone in, in taking these measures, though, given the role of the dollar in the global economy. Some of the things that, that they have done are global coordination with other major central banks their interventions through swaps to ensure the availability globally of, of, of dollar liquidity. So four kind of measures, and some of them you've touched on, Chris, with the, with the Fed example. Obviously, very loose economic, uh, very loose monetary policy with interest rates everywhere at historic lows. Given the public health necessity, social uh, isolation or, or social distancing, this is unlikely to have lead consumers to spend more. The effectiveness of that is short-term, at least questionable. The other thing central banks are doing that here as an example is to intervene in selected markets that are frozen or thin or otherwise not functioning properly. So the Fed did that with the commercial paper market here in the U.S. That is going to continue to happen in the next few weeks. It's hard to know kind of anti which market will not function properly. The short-term funded markets especially are, are vulnerable at the moment globally, and I expect major central banks to continue to watch that closely and, and intervene where necessary. This very aggressive use of discount windows and equivalence programs. The European Central Bank, for example, changed longer-term refinancing operations programs to support aggressively bank lending to small and medium enterprises. And then finally, most large central banks have resumed or expanded their efforts. We talked about the Fed, but the ECB earlier this week also announced 750 billion of additional corporate and government bonds purchased. So let me finish there on many countries. I think David is spot on when he says.
uh, let me let me leave it there for now. Uh, thank you, Bart. Uh, I'd like to remind you that Bart come, comes to ACG uh, Analytics from the Atlantic Council. Before that, at Careers and Economists uh, with uh, Moody uh, Sovereign Rating in London. This is your time, Bart. Interestingly, uh, John East, we just received an email. Below is a list of asks that Schumer is requesting from CEOs who are calling looking for help. Grant funds can only be used for payroll or frontline workers. No layoffs for a set period of time. No benefit reduction or pay cuts for a set period of time. Meaningful executive compensation restrictions. This, is, this next one's really interesting. Placing a worker representative on the board of directors. No stock buybacks. John, how do you think those those types of conditions will play with the Republicans? Well, the board thing is news to me. I don't think this plays well with Republicans. But these conditions largely track what you said in public comment. What it signals to me is that if you're an industry and you want, he's the one talking about bailout. If you want a bailout, you agree to these conditions. With that note, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts, John and Rob, Gabby, Bart, and Chris, for offering their unique insights. ACG Analytics will continue to monitor this situation as it it evolves. For more updates on the coronavirus pandemic and its effects on capital markets, subscribe to our coronavirus email live feed to get minute-to-minute updates without waiting for our polished research notes. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.